Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Forever. Dog. Hey, y'all. My name is Alex Berg, and welcome to the LGBTQ Nation podcast. LGBTQ Nation is the nation's leader in LGBTQ news and commentary. And this podcast is an extension of both their reporting and of their mission. Each week, we focus on major topics affecting the LGBTQ community and speak with the nation's brightest thinkers, journalists, activists, politicians, and more. In recent weeks, there has been an alarming rise in anti-Asian hate crimes accompanied by disturbing videos documenting incidents of violence against elders. The attacks come in the wake of racist and xenophobic rhetoric from former President Donald Trump about COVID-19 and attacks on Asian American and Pacific Islander communities that increased at the outset of the pandemic. But of course, there is a long history of anti-Asian racism and xenophobia in the U.S., as well as harmful myths about immigrant communities that have led to this current moment. On today's show, we're going to take a look at this news from an LGBTQ lens. The NYPD has reported that last year, hate crimes based on anti-Asian bias increased by 1,900% in New York. Meanwhile, the FBI reported an uptick in anti-LGBTQ attacks, so we want to talk about what all that means together, the history, why it's important, and what we can do about it. Joining me to discuss, we have a panel that can talk about this from all angles. We have AC Dumlao, a program manager for the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund managing the Name Change Project. In 2019, they were named an NYC World Pride Community Hero by Heritage of Pride. Amazon Leite, an athlete who has used her platform to advocate for LGBTQ plus Asian visibility, an ambassador to five international LGBTQ plus organizations, including Athlete Ally and Stonewall. And we have Sammy Ablaza-Wills, director of APINC, who has trained hundreds of young trans, queer, Asian people to lead from values of abundance and interdependence. Thank you all so much for joining me. Thank you for having us, Alex. Thank you for having us. It's great to be in conversation with you all. To jump right into this conversation, Sammy, I want to start with you because many of the incidents of anti-Asian violence are happening in Northern California, where you are based. What are some of the reports you've seen and what have you been thinking about them? Yeah, I think this is a, a really great place to start the conversation because one of our key places where we're getting data is from the Stop AAPI Hate Project. And this reporting center has documented over 2,800 incidences of hate in 2020 alone, and 700 of those occurred in the Bay Area. I think importantly, 70% of the incidences that people have been reporting, self-reporting, are from folks who are not identifying as Chinese. So on the ground, I think there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of tension, and there's an acknowledgement that in this past year, the racist rhetoric that's come directly from the federal level 
calling the coronavirus things like the Kung flu, scapegoating people from China and therefore people who are mistaken as Chinese. All of those different factors on top of one another means that people living on the ground, you know, people in our local communities are nervous. They're afraid, they're feeling targeted and attacked, and especially vulnerable in this moment where not only are these attacks happening, but they're hyper-visible. They're visibilized, they're shared on social media platforms, they're in every sort of news outlet, and they're concentrated in these areas where there's also, of course, a high density of Asian folks, like in the Bay. You know, we, we have some of the oldest Asian communities in the so-called United States. Uh, and for that reason, there is a wealth of cultural knowledge and it can also make people more vulnerable. One of the things you mentioned is the hypervisibility of a lot of these videos. But as these videos have emerged, people have questioned why it took so long for them to get media coverage. Amazon, what message do you think that sends that it took so long for mainstream media outlets to start reporting on this? You know, as a community, you know, we've always been seen as very invisible. And this obviously comes from this myth of being this invisible model minority. And there's, you know, there's trauma within our community because, you know, this had, this anti-Asian rhetoric has affected us right from the start of the pandemic. And it has waited all this time until people have started to die before we've received national and international exposure. And we shouldn't have to have waited this long because, you know, there's this hashtag that Asians are human too. And we are valued as people and as people from a, you know, the community as well. And, you know, we should have been taken seriously right at the beginning with this rhetoric that had come from the federal level, because it has been very serious right from the beginning, people being punched, people being, you know, hit by baseball bats. Um, You know, it, it hasn't been seen as a hate crime. And even now, with what's been going on, particularly towards Asian elderly people, some of the incidences have still not been seen as a hate crime. So even though it's getting this national exposure, we're still struggling for this acknowledgement that these are hate crimes. And, you know, this has been going on for the past four years from the Trump administration, but then now that, you know, the past couple of years from the rhetoric as well of what, you know, Sammy has spoken about. AC, I could see you uh, nodding along as Sammy and Amazon uh, were both speaking. Um, Chime in here. What what is all of this making you think about? It's been a difficult time. So when you reached out, Alex, I actually had an incident in March where I was kind of being verbally harassed, March 2020, by someone in, in Manhattan. And it wasn't clear, but I am an Asian person um, and and remarks were being made about that. Uh, luckily, I was not physically harmed, but it felt a little surreal because this was right before um, the CDC uh, and the WHO declared the pandemic. So I kind of went into questioning, like, what did I do to provoke this or could it have actually been related to to the coronavirus? Um, I'm Filipino American myself, so I navigate a space within Asian communities that 
is a little bit less visible. And I also, working at TILDEF, where I focus on the name change project primarily with low-income trans folks, 60% um, people of color, 65% living at or under the poverty line. In all of these stories, and, and Sammy already started talking about this, to, to think about the the layering of identities of the the people who are being attacked. And then also I'm caught in a place of feeling troubled by some of the rhetoric in discussing the anti-Asian attacks uh, when it comes to our place as Asian Americans, um, anti-Blackness in our communities. Um, and at the end of the day, we're here to fight white supremacy, right? Um, and it, it's white supremacy that wants us to, to pit ourselves against other races. Um, but it also flattens the community because there are Black Asian people. There are Black Pacific Islanders, right? We, we hold a multitude of, of experiences. And it's very interesting to see some kind of very visible cis het. East Asian celebrities kind of taking up this mantle of activism when there has been a long story history of, of Asian activists, of Asian and Black um, coalitions and solidarity. And it's, it's not new. This moment is new and this discussion is new, peaking in 2021, but it's, we've we've been doing this for a long time. I really appreciate you, first of all, uh, sharing your own personal story. That sounds incredibly upsetting. So thank you so much for talking us through that. And I've also seen this media narrative um, seeking to pit groups against each other rather than dressing, addressing the larger issues of white supremacy and racism that have led us to this point. Sammy, I can see you nodding. Is this something that you've also observed as well? Yeah, I, I really appreciate you for bringing that up, AC. I think in this moment, some of the loudest voices or some of the voices that are getting prioritized as we're talking about the attacks on Asian elders are from uh, celebrities and influencers who are calling for incredibly reactive, uh, quote unquote, solutions. You know, they're, they're offering reward money. They're calling for more policing. They're advocating for things that are ultimately more divisive in our communities and that simply don't address the root cause of why these attacks are happening in the first place. There are, of course, layers of racism and ageism that I think are important to acknowledge that our Asian elders are experiencing. And at the exact same time, there is a, a fundamental need to address why these attacks are happening in terms of housing food security, safety, health care, especially mental health care. And those needs that folks are experiencing cannot be decoupled with the horrible and violent attacks that are happening. And I think when people are calling for things like policing or criminalization of Black communities, they're missing a big part of the picture and a big part of the narrative uh, that could actually encourage us to say, all of our communities are experiencing things that we should not be experiencing. And as we address anti-Asian violence and harassment, we can be in solidarity with our Black siblings, with our all communities of color and oppressed communities to lift up solutions that bring up all of us at the same time. Uh, because there's, there's no room for anti-Blackness if we're doing Asian organizing and Asian activism. 
that does not speak true to the historical legacy. It does not speak true to the experiences of the Asian elders that have been organizing in Oakland and across the Bay. And it doesn't speak true to a liberatory future in which our folks are actually safe and taken care of and connected in all of the ways that we need them to be. This spotlight on these terrible anti-Asian attacks, that is just one form of violence. And so to just like widen out what, what Sammy was saying, we have to talk about state violence. We have to talk about the prison industrial complex, right? So these calls for, you know, reward for catching this perpetrator or let's have stronger hate crime laws, right? Those are related to acts of violence from the prison industrial complex and hurt all marginalized people who are specifically more likely to be be targeted by police and policing. And, you know, as someone that primarily works with, with trans communities, I see a lot of overlap for people who are gender nonconforming. So that includes all people, not just trans people. Anyone is, who is perceived to be gender nonconforming is going to receive more attention from the police state, similarly to how a person of color is going to do that same experiencing. So if we, the Asian community, is, is calling for, for more police, that is, in my opinion, not the right call. There's a, a recent story of a, a Filipino-American man who's actually, it was my age, who... Um, his family called in a, in a mental health crisis and he was murdered by the police, right? And so they didn't respond and they didn't save him and he wasn't saved because he was an Asian person or a, a, a non-Black person, right? He, he still died. And, and that is indicative of the root of safety does not rely on the police. It's in, in the community work that we do. It's, it's a lot to untangle. I'll be honest. It's a lot to untangle. And I, I learn every day kind of more about where my place is as a, I am a, a trans non-binary person. I am a person of color, but I'm also a non-Black person of color. I also hold a number of other privileges to even have my position at my organization, to even have a platform on this podcast. So there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. There's so much to untangle. And staying on the topic of your work, um, every single year, it seems as though the rates of hate-motivated violence increase towards LGBTQ people. So coupled with the recent attacks, how does all of this impact queer and trans-Asian folks? So last year, I believe the number what with HRC was 44 at least 44. You always have to say at least when it comes to, to trans people um, that we've lost um, who have been murdered because of underreporting and misreporting and misgendering. Today we're recording this at the end of February and there have already been at least six reported murders um, of, of trans folks. And so I think one of the, the questions we talked about earlier, Alex, is, you know, what took so long for for the, the media to catch up and, and report on this. And to that, I say, not a direct answer, but there was a media matters study that just came out that said that um, broadcast and cable TV spent less than one hour covering anti-trans violence last year, right? And also that the people reporting on it were cis people. And so for me, I think it's thinking about the, the media machine itself is primarily run by 
rich, white, cis, het people. And the stories that they tell are disproportionate to the populations of our different marginalized communities that exist in the U.S. and in the world. And so to, to just close in on specifically the recent anti-Asian attacks um, kind of misses the story just as we and we're just talking about how just specifying this one type of violence is missing kind of the bigger picture. And to bring it back to, to trans and non-binary Asian people, you know, living with those multiple marginalized identities just further um, puts us in harm's way when it comes to, to experiencing all types of violence. Amazon, you started to get into this a little bit earlier um, as well in terms of talking about uh the media making folks invisible. So how do you think all of this impacts queer and trans Asian folks as well? I think we have to also acknowledge, you know, the silence, pain and trauma that, you know, Asian queer people are going through. I mean, when I think of particularly myself, the impacts of the pandemic, the mental health impact, the isolation that one is feeling, um, you know, many LGBTQ people are stuck in environments in this time that, you know, there could be around domestic violence or around well- relatives or families that aren't accepting of them. And, you know, we have to acknowledge the trauma as well of seeing this violence on a regular basis. And this was brought up through the BLM movement over the last year of how Black people felt of continually seeing these videos of violence and how it eats away at your mental health. And so there's that silent trauma as well that you don't necessarily see of the, the violence that we also hold within ourselves. And, you know, it's like, what do we do about that and the kind of lack of support system that we have in terms of supporting our mental health in this time. And I think I want to go back to what Sammy has said and AC has said in terms of looking at the larger picture of inequality across the country. And I think this violence is a byproduct of that because, you know, we have looked in societies where your basic needs are met and where there's a social system that supports those basic needs. People are happier, you may see less violence because people's housing needs are met, people's employment needs are met, and people's basic finances are covered because the state is paying some kind of, you know, social financial support on a monthly basis to most people. I mean, there are so many layers to this. And Sammy, earlier you started to talk about kind of history and legacy and understanding uh, history. And of course, as I've said, this is not the first time this has happened. There is a legacy of this in this country. Um, what do you think we can learn from history about this moment that we're in? Yeah, thank you for asking. I am a history nerd, and I think there's so much wisdom to be found in history, both the stories themselves, but also the mistakes that were made. You know, we can understand deeper where we are going if we know where we came from. And I have learned so much about history uh, that informs my current practice and and all the work that I'm able to do now with trans and queer Asian and Pacific Islander folks in the Bay. And so there's a few things that I think are really worth uplifting, right? For myself, understanding what it was like for Filipinos to come to this country, 
why that was even a thing in the first place. You know, the impacts of imperialism on the Philippines, the labor export policies that drove people away from their home country and having to go to places like the United States, even if they didn't know anyone. I think about the radical legacies of the things like the Third World Liberation Front, a multiracial coalition of groups fighting for ethnic studies, fighting against imperialism, and fighting to ensure that that all communities of color have access to basic needs. I even think about some of the radical organizing of some of my queer and trans API elders in the Bay coming together at times in which people were not allowed to congregate. People were not allowed simply to even be together. They found ways to always be in community. And when the coronavirus started to really take shape in the United States, I thought back to the legacies of, of the folks who lived through the HIV and AIDS crisis and how in that moment of deep turmoil and crisis, they did not say, okay, every, every person out there for yourself, like worry about your own issues. Folks turned towards one another and they said, we are a community negatively and disproportionately impacted by this and people are not paying attention. We're going to commit even harder than before to loving one another into agitating our outside context so that we can get our needs met. And I think from that, we see amazing coalitions of Asian Pacific Islander folks advocating for culturally competent AIDS and HIV material, partnering with Black community leaders to ensure that Black folks also have access to HIV and AIDS resources. And the kernels of those things, the kernels of that work, the Third World Liberation Front, all of the Black and Asian solidarity that's happened in the Bay Area and across the United States, uh, we can really begin to see that the narrative throughout time is that communities of color want to show up for one another and are stronger when they do. And I think when we're able to ground in that history of deep relationship and mutuality and acknowledging difference so that we can move forward together, it allows us to ground our organizing work in abundance and interdependence rather than a false sense of scarcity that I think capitalism and racism often force people to be in. So many of the hard-earned lessons from organizing are things that we can still apply today so that we can have a keen eye to understand when scarcity is creeping up on us. And as Asian folks, we can decide and say, I will not be forced into that narrative. I will not be forced into a false model minority. I will not be forced into a false, like every person for themselves or a false American dream or you pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And instead, I'm going to ground myself and my work in solidarity, in action and in organizing. Amazon, one of the things that you said is that looking forward and looking at how incidents should be addressed is that we need to look at the bigger picture. So how would you like to see these incidents addressed? I feel in terms of the incidences, you know, we need to get the coverage. That's important because I've spoken to so many people across the US and they're like, I didn't hear about this story that happened in New York or Oakland. And I think, how could you have not have heard of this incident? So, you know, it needs to get the national co coverage. Um, I also feel that, you know, where we know they are hate crimes, they need to be called out for what they are as hate crimes because that becomes an issue in terms of validating 
these crimes as as well. And you know, we have to be taken seriously as a community. I mean, you know, in terms of this kind of exposure, this kind, these kinds of crimes that have not just swept swept across the US, but they've been international. This is like the first time that the Asian community has been seen so clearly for so many people and our stories have been told, but we have to get the exposure as as well. And I think that has been a big issue when I speak to people across the US when they just have not heard about these stories, but they've heard about other stories from other communities. AC, how would you like to see these incidents addressed? How I would want this to be addressed is holistically, right? These are all connected to each other. Something to kind of parallel that I see with with the name change project at Tildef, working with low-income trans folks, is understanding that the connection between the prison industrial complex and people having, you know, prior convictions related to trying to just feed their families or to to have the material means to to clothe themselves and then being seen as lesser than as a person of color and then being seen as fraudulent as a gender nonconforming person and kind of all of these layers, you know, the big three, um, race, class, and gender, the ways that in America that that this idea, and Sammy said this about the the model minority myth and the American dream, as someone who doesn't believe in that, the, the model minority myth relies on the idea that people of color, um, particularly Asian people, that our goal is to assimilate and be fully American. And to mean fully American being fully white and American and all that comes with that. And that's not a goal that I have and that isn't a goal that I've seen in in POC communities and in Asian communities. So there isn't just an automatic fix. I feel very strongly that it is not to um, call for more policing, um, that we do need people to receive aid from federal and state governments. You know, this this pandemic, I think, has has shown further the cracks that exist in these systems um, and the ways that American individualism has shown itself to, to be very unkind. And that's what that's what community care is about. That's what mutual aid is about. That's what, you know, finding our, our queer and trans siblings, our POC siblings and and relying on each other and, and the whole community is about. So those are a few thoughts from me. Sammy, you posted a TikTok about how we can't wait for racist and xenophobic anti-Asian violence to hit an inflection point before we care. How would you like to see people do a better job of engaging long term? Yes. Shout out to TikTok. Always shout out to TikTok. <laughs> it's it's so funny because I, you know, I made that in a moment of realizing that for a lot of folks, this is maybe the first time they have considered that Asian Americans in this country uh, have some problems, that we got some issues that we've been working on. And in a way that I, I want to be excited about, I want to welcome people, you know, it is never too late to make a good decision. It's never too late to get involved and get agitated and get educated about what we can do. And as someone who's been organizing in the Asian American movement for a decade now, 
there is a lot to learn and there's a lot of roles that we need people to take on. Violence against Asian American people systemically and interpersonally is not a new thing. And people have been working for years, for decades, since Asian people came to Turtle Island to ensure that folks had what they need and folks have what they need to be safe and to be well. So I I think from this moment, I just want to encourage people to dig into their abundance, to identify what their role is, what their role can be, so that in moments of crisis, we're not getting ready because we have just stayed ready. You know, I think this is a great time to identify your internal resources, to get a lay of the land, to understand who is working on critical issues and what kind of support do they need. If we look at any movement throughout history, those movements were directly built on relationships. You know, they're built on the fibers between people, the the quality of time that people have established with one another. And so I would just encourage folks to get plugged in directly to, to organizing homes and to spaces that have been doing this work for years. I would encourage people to know their history so that when moments of violence happens, we can contextualize what's happened within a longer arc of something rather than looking at things as isolated incidents. I would encourage people to listen to the people directly experiencing that oppression, especially the folks experiencing oppression at multiple intersections. Because I think at the end of the day, you know, not all of the amazing work that is being done to address the issues faced by the Asian American community, that's not going to be all on Instagram and it's not going to be all on TikTok. Uh, A lot of the folks that are doing the work on the ground, because they're working with Asian elders, for example, they're not posting it on Instagram because the members of their base are not looking on Instagram. You know, maybe they're on WeChat, maybe they're on something else, you know, so they may not even have a smartphone. Yeah, exactly. You know, they may not even have internet. Um, And I don't mean to say like, I don't like the internet. The internet is a powerful and a connective tool, but it is not the only resource that people have. And so I would encourage people to identify the multitude of resources that we have available to us and then find ways to incorporate that into every part of your life. To move beyond singular reactions into an integrated life in which we're uplifting issues, taking in information, correcting our habits, and and building liberation with with everything that we do every day. You know, it doesn't have to be quit your job and become an organizer, but there's a multitude of things that folks can commit to on the day today to learn about things like uh, transphobia, that API folks experience, to learn about domestic violence and gender-based violence, to learn about concepts like environmental racism, to learn about how South Asian communities and Muslim communities, which are also under this Asian American umbrella, have been negatively impacted on the state level and interpersonally for decades. And all of those things are, are critical to dig into to really fully flesh out the Asian American experience and the Asian American history that we need to ground in. To start to wrap up our conversation, and on the same note that everyone has a role to play, Amazon, what actions do you think people should take next to address the violence and show solidarity with LGBTQ plus Asian communities? Kind of piggybacking on what Sammy has said, you know, it's like we need allies and advocates. And, you know, it's not 
just a celebrity saying, I, I, you know, here's a reward, you know, who's, who's the culprit, but it's, you know, actively looking within the communities that you're in, the cities and the states that you're in and thinking, you know, who, who are the Asian organizers on the ground? Which, which are the Asian organizations that I could donate to, that I could support, um, but also little things within your own net- network of, you know, reaching out to your Asian colleagues, your f- Asian friends, your Asian loved ones, and checking in on them and taking an active role of being interested in our culture and who we are because I think we can do so much through storytelling because there's so much fear of otherism within communities, particularly, you know, we, we see it within the trans community, people who don't know the trans community or people who haven't met LGBTQ people, you know, you're fearful of what you don't know and start looking outside the people that you know and saying hello and, you know, reaching out to those that you may not never have spoken to before because I think, you know, I think, you know, coming from the business community, many business leaders are asking themselves, you know, how can we be better allies and advocates at this point in time towards the BLM movement and towards the Asian community because this is a reflection of who our staff are as well and it's just so important to reach out to us and check in because, you know, it's a very difficult time for everyone and I think, you know, going on what AC has said that we can't look at this as isolated incidences. These are incidences that have come from white supremacy of, you know, pitting our community against other community because of this myth of our closeness and proximity to whiteness. And, you know, we're stronger together than we are apart. And, you know, what if Samu has said, you know, we have to look into our history because, you know, when I think of the Vietnamese American community of how we've come into the country and how black leaders like Martin Luther King were there for us throughout the Vietnam War is that, you know, we have always remained solidarity, you know, in, in unity with, you know, our black and our Asian, you know, sisters and, and brothers because they were also part of our community. AC, give us our final thought here. Uh, what do you think our listeners can do if they want to act in solidarity? I think the thing that I would love folks to take away is when we're thinking about LGBTQ API communities is that those are those are two identities but LGBTQ API folks we are disabled we're working class we are sex workers we're immigrants we're undocumented um, there is a large undocumented Asian population that isn't necessarily talked about um, in in kind of mass media and it's important to understand that that you know, we have a stake in 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 talking about those issues, um, and we're elders, of course, and and we are you know experiencing state and police violence, and so I I would ask folks to 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 take a step back and look at the the big picture because not to be cynical, but in two months, this isn't going to be the main story in the news. Um, But that doesn't mean that anti-Asian sentiment has gone away. That doesn't mean that anti-LGBTQ violence stops. Um, But understanding that we are a part of all of these marginalized communities that at the end of the day are interconnected and that we need to fight for each other. And 
to kind of put a, a button on that, something that, that I know all LGBTQ orgs and, and beyond civil rights orgs are looking at is the Equality Act, um, which was uh, just reintroduced in the House last week. That is going to to ensure protections based off of gender and sexual orientation and codify that across the country. Because right now it's just kind of a, a piecemeal puzzle of which states have rights and which ones don't. And that is directly related to the, the Civil Rights Act, which LGBTQ people are of all races. And it's really important to, to not forget that Unfortunately, I think, you know, as a New Yorker, people just assume that we have all of these rights, right? But they're not promised to all of us and we need to have that across the country. So I think things like that are directly related. And if I may, one more, we need to get those most vulnerable vaccinated. You know, I'm watching a lot of amazing people volunteer to, to help elders, help elders who speak languages other than English get those appointments. We, at least we have seen that it's kind of, a very, very tough uh, uh, Hunger Games to get a vaccine appointment right now. And so we we don't want to forget that, that we to reach kind of that, that safety and herd immunity that that folks that aren't, you know, really good at the Internet or who don't have Internet at their house or who don't have access to non-English materials are, are getting help navigating that and, and are being taken care of in that way. Well, thank you all so much for taking the time to join me to talk about this difficult topic and also to begin to unpack all of the very many layers of it. Um, Where can our listeners find each of you, starting with you, Sammy? If folks want to hear more about APENC and organizing with trans and queer Asian and Pacific Islander folks in the Bay, uh, you can find us on pretty much every social media platform at APENC, A-P-I-E-N-C, or check us out at APENC.org. And if you want to connect with me, I'm also on pretty much every social media site at FTWSAMI, S-A-M-M-I-E. Would love to hear from you. Amazon, where can our listeners find you? Sure. I'm across all social media at Amazon Letty. And people can also find me through my website, AmazonLetty.com. AC, where can our listeners find you? Um, I am on Twitter at... Mix AC Dumlao, so that's M X A C Dumlao, D as in drag, U M as in Manila, L as in legal, A O, or my website, callmethey.com. And then please check out tildef, T L D E F.org, and we're on Twitter and Facebook as well. <laughs> Each week, after we talk about a serious subject, I like to leave you with some good news. LGBTQ Nation reports that the Biden administration is working with the ACLU to add X as a gender marker on federal identification documents, which would allow non-binary, intersex, and trans folks to put a gender-neutral marker on IDs such as passports. There have been reports that Biden could issue an executive order on the matter with hopes that it could get done within his first 100 days. This would be a significant change because it would allow non-binary, intersex, and trans people to have documentation that accurately reflects their gender identity. This would make it easier to navigate services and institutions from housing to employment that require identification documents and allow individuals to do so without fear of facing discrimination due to having an ID that doesn't align with their identity. In many states, trans people face onerous barriers when changing their gender markers on their IDs such as being required to obtain a doctor's letter or provide proof of medical care. Some states already have gender-neutral markers on their IDs, but instituting an X at the federal level would affirm that non-binary gender identities are valid and begin to address these challenges. We'll continue to keep an eye on the story and update you as it progresses.
Please make sure to support the LGBTQ Nation podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review our show right now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars, please. And check out LGBTQ Nation every day at www.lgbtqnation.com. LGBTQ Nation has been a joint production between Forever Dog and Q Digital. LGBTQ Nation is hosted by Alex Berg, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered by Katrina Henning, music by Gabe Lopez, executive produced by Joe Cilio, Scott Gatz, John Helbach, Bill Browning, and Melissa D. Mons. Forever <laughs>